Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us today as we continue through Luke's Gospel. Today it's the new calling found in Luke chapter 5 and the first 11 verses. Now, I don't know about you, but anyone here, do you love to read or like to read biographies of famous people, things of that nature? You know, I love to read stories of how they were and who they were and how they came to be. Uh, also, I, I don't know about you too, but I, I love movies and I love origin stories. You know, how did someone become who they were? And so, you know, it's finding the backstory of that person. Well, we're going to kind of see that today as we look at the origin stories or the backstory of how Jesus came to call Peter, James, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Now, if we finished off chapter four of Luke's gospel last week, we saw as Jesus testified that he was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, especially or specifically to the children of Abraham, the of children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we considered the preeminence, the purpose, the power, and the practicality of preaching the gospel to a world that is in desperate need of the good news that Jesus saves. And before we go on, I need to give a, another side note, something that I, I meant to express last week, but I don't know if I expressed it well enough. Because many people say, let's preach the gospel. In, in, the, in the strife that we're seeing now today, and t- take whatever topic that you see, we believe that preaching the gospel is the final solution. It's the solution. We need to be saved from our sins. However, just to say preach the gospel is not enough. It's like finding someone down the street and they come to you and they say, listen, I am starving. I haven't eaten in, in a week. Can you just spare something? You look at them and say, Jesus loves you and he died so that you may be free. And then you walk away. Or say, well, if you would just hunger and thirst after righteousness, then you will be filled. That's not enough. The scripture tells us if we see, if we have an opportunity good to do good, then we are to do it. If not, it is a sin. And so we need to recognize that. So I don't want to, to get to this point where we say, well, we just preach the gospel. No, we need to declare the gospel. And what I was trying to say last week that I don't think I did as well as I should have is we need to also demonstrate the gospel. And we do that by feeding those who need feed, helping those within the body of Christ, helping others outside so they may see the love of God. And so in this day, we need to not only declare, preach the gospel, but we also need to demonstrate it. Uh, what I was trying to get is last week is that we have this, this thing where we want to demonstrate God's love, this gospel charades, but not declare it. So we need to do both. So uh, if you have more questions about that, if you don't think I was clear enough, please come and let me know. But as we move this week, we move to chapter 5, where Luke gives his readers insight into the calling of Jesus' first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And you can imagine his first readers, they would have been enthralled, especially with Peter and the calling of disciples. They would want to know who these men and how they came to follow Christ. So with that, let's look at Luke chapter 5. And let's look at the first three verses Is it here on the monitor. But again, I encourage you to follow on the, with, on the, with your Bible if you have it. If not, again, I want to offer you a free Bible uh, this morning. Uh, don't leave home without it. On one occasion, Luke writes, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. 
And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little, a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. Father, I pray that you just give us wisdom as we learn here about uh, the origins of the first calling of the disciples. Father, we thank you for Luke's gospel. We thank you for this eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so I pray that you just open up our hearts to receive it with joy. Father, let me speak words that are edifying, that are building up. Father, if there's any rebuke, let it be done with love. Let us know the difference between what your word says and just my mere opinion, which is, which is flawed. And we understand that. And so, Father, I pray that your work would do, uh, your, your Holy Spirit would do its work, Lord, that you've ordained it to do. We pray in your name. Amen. You know, as we read this passage, we find that the crowd is pressing in on Jesus. And this is a, you know, a, a familiar refrain from chapter 4. They just continually demand more and more of his attention. And in this case, it says, so they may hear the word of God. Now, this is the first time that Luke uses that phrase, word of God. And it refers to the gospel message that Jesus came to deliver those who were enslaved to sin and under the curse of death. His popularity, as we've seen again, is spreading, and it's difficult to go anywhere without the crowd finding him and putting demands on him. Yet, even in the midst of this pressure, Jesus willingly takes the time and continues to teach and minister to all who will come to him. Luke had pointed out that in the last chapter that Jesus' method of operation or ministry was to travel to the different towns and villages around the area and then visit the local synagogues on the Sabbath where he would preach and teach, ask, answer questions, and do his healings and his miracles. However, in this narrative, Luke notes that on this occasion, Jesus finds himself outdoors. The people have discovered where he's at, and they're pressing on him. He's followed by a large crowd that wanted to hear him preach, teach, and perform miracles. Now, at this point in his gospel, Luke writes of the origins and the calling of Jesus' first disciples. He writes that Jesus is teaching at the lake near the northwest corner of what's called the Sea of Galilee. Now, Lake Gennesaret, for those of you who may not know the map, or I've never been there, those I've talked to others, and you can see the maps typically in your Bible. Lake Gennesaret is also known as the Sea of Tiberias, or more commonly known to us in the New Testament as the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, or Lake Gennesaret, is a freshwater inland lake that is 14 miles long by 6 miles wide. And this is important as we go on the story. It's, it could be almost 141 feet deep. And it supported a flourishing fishing industry in that area. And since voices carry well over water, this area here, this, this, this little Lake Gennesaret, provided a natural, natural amphitheater from which to speak to the crowd so they could hear what he was saying. Seeing that there were two empty boats docked, he took the liberty to climb into one. The boat that Jesus gets into belongs to Simon, who was introduced to us in the last chapter when Jesus healed his mother-in-law. From a severe fever. And he asked Simon to push the boat away from the dock in order to accommodate that large group of people that is gathered at the lake so they could come a little bit further in and they could hear him. Setting down in the boat, he then begins to share the gospel. Luke does not record the message or the response of the people in this event, but instead he skips to the aftermath as Jesus now turns his focus from the crowd right onto Simon. 
in verse 4. So in Luke chapter 5, verse 4, look at it with me. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and we've took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in another boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Luke now is putting his focus of this narrative onto Simon. Of course, you and I know Simon more commonly as Peter, who is the greatest and most famous of the apostles. He is considered the first among equals. If you look at a list of the Bible in the New Testament, every time they list disciples, Peter will always be listed first. He also served as their uh, unofficial leader and spokesperson for the eleven. At the same moment, it was some moment, I should say, during Jesus' teaching, Simon had returned from mending and cleaning his nets to his boat to listen to the message. Jesus turns to Peter, and I'm going to use that common name from now on. And he asked him to push out further into the lake and put down their nets to catch some fish. Peter's answer here uh, gives us both doubt and obedience. His response is not showing disrespect as he calls him master, which is a term only used by followers of Jesus. As you go through the New Testament, you'll see that his disciples and followers would always call him master, whereas the religious leaders and others would call him rabbi or teacher. No doubt his doubt is fueled by his expertise in fishing and his experience of the night before. Peter's doubt is evidence in his response by telling Jesus, we toiled all night and took nothing. Have you ever had a day like that at work? Where it seems like you did nothing but work, 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 but at the end of it you felt like you had nothing accomplished? I used to have that when I worked in the printing business. We would, we would print these large jobs. And I think I've shared this before. Only to have some executive secretary to come in and say, oh, they want to change this one page or one paragraph. However, what we had to do is you just could not usually do that in a book. You would have to throw hundreds of reams of paper away and start all over. There was none that was always so demoralizing. And you can imagine these men, they, this was a difficult job of taking those nets and going out at night and catching those fish and bringing them in. And, and here we see they've gone all night and once again they have nothing. Now, you and I might say, okay, but still, if I get nothing, I get paid, right? I still get a paycheck whether I accomplished anything or not. But they would not. They would take that fish and clean it and sell it that day. They would not get paid until that fish was sold. There was no way to, to keep that fish and sell it at the, at the local Costco, the local Sam's or Vons. There was none of that. So for them to go empty-handed many times would meant that their family may not have food themselves for that day, or that they would put uh, more pressure on them on the following days. So they're exhausted, they're tired, probably demoralized. They probably didn't have that many times. And who can blame Peter for expressing his doubt about catching any fish? They just finished a very unproductive evening and they came up empty. They must have been tired and exhausted by this time as the sun rose. Now, what's interesting to note about this is that the nets that they used in those days were made out of linen, linen, hence why they had to clean them each and every day. 
The material made them visible to the fish in the day. So it was natural to fish at night. So you wouldn't fish in the day, you would fish at night so that the fish could not see the, the gleam of the, of the, uh, of the nets. They would, they would avoid the fish. Not only that, is but the nets were not much use during the day when the fish would go deeper into the water where their nets could not, uh, could not catch the fish. The nets only went down so far. So here's Jesus. He's not a fisherman here. He's, he's talking to these experienced men who have accomplished nothing all night. And he says, put out in the deep, take those nets, and throw them in the water. Now to them, he say, go deeper. Remember, what, 141 feet? The fish are not there where their nets could go. Their nets can only go so far uh, deep. He couldn't reach it. Yet Peter's obedience is demonstrated when he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. So he had some doubt. His experience and his expertise had told him this is a, a waste, a useless waste of time. However, he obeys Christ and he does so. And though Luke does not give us the time frame of when they let down their nets and when the fish began to come, it seems that it happened rather quickly. Luke writes that the catch was so large that they had a signal to their partners to come and help them. This gives us another insight into these first disciples. Many times they are depicted by the opposition as just simple, ignorant fishermen. However, they were businessmen who owned several commercial fishing boats. Now, that does not mean that these men were wealthy by any means, but it points to the fact that as businessmen, they would have a little bit more education and sophistication than many would give them credit for. But as they put out their nets, as we see the narrative, it becomes so much, so heavy, uh, so many fish, that the nets begin to break, and they're pulling them into the boat, and the boats themselves begin to sink. This was a haul, this was a catch that they had never experienced. But this passage also demonstrates Jesus' omniscience and providence over the natural world. Jesus knew where the fish were. He knew that they were ready to be caught. He provided the needs of these men so they could sell this fish and provide for their family. You and I, as a side note, should never doubt the instructions and commands of Christ is he is more than able to supply all that we need to survive and thrive in this life. This miraculous provision leads Peter and the rest of the disciples to a life-changing decision that will soon change the world. This was an ordained moment. Continue with me in Luke 5. Look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Peter's response to this event is fear humility, and worship. His response is fear, humility, and worship. Luke writes that Peter recognized the difference between himself and Jesus. He, he had one of those come-to-Jesus type moments. He, we're not told that Peter understood exactly who Jesus was, but he knew that he could not measure up. 
When he calls himself a sinful man, he confesses that he is a man who is full of moral failure and a violator of God's law. He echoes the words of Job, who confessed in his psalm, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, speaking of God. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Peter knew that he was in the presence of one that was holy. This was a theophany in which Jesus again appears in incarnate flesh. He cries out for Jesus to depart from me, which is kind of funny because where was Jesus supposed to go? He was in the middle of the lake on a boat. At this time, Jesus hadn't walked on water, but Peter just says, depart from me. James and John, along with Peter's brother, who is not mentioned here, are also as astonished what they had just witnessed. What is amazing here is that after Peter's humble confession, after he confesses, I am a sinful man, by the way, that, that's what you and I should be saying to God. That should be the appropriate response of us. We are a sinful man. We have fallen in our moral failure. We are no longer uh, uh, right to be, be right with God. But what we see here is that Jesus comforts and reassures him and then proceeds to give him a new calling when he says, from now on, you will be catching men. That's a, a phrase that's continuing action. You will be continuing. He says, I'm going to replace what you're doing. I'm going to take your expertise and your experience, but I'm going to put it in a different career path, a different career change. You are no longer going to be catching fish. Now, this is interesting. I didn't have this set up. I'm just going to give it real quickly. But at the end of John, after Jesus had denied Christ three times, we find Jesus once again after his resurrection on a beach with the, with the disciples, seeing that they're fishing once again. And he goes to them after, they, after their catch, and they broil some fish. And Jesus says, do you love me more than these? What is he speaking about? The fish. He says, follow me. So there's kind of an interesting, is at the end, he gets the same thing. You will be catching men. You too will be doing what I have been called to do, Jesus is essentially saying. Now for Luke's original readers, as well as us and all who read this narrative, we are learning of the call of the first disciples of Jesus. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus is offering these men a career change that will dramatically change not only their lives, but the lives of millions of others as they serve as the seeds of the New Testament church. You and I are able to sit here this morning hearing the word of God because of the call of these four men. We must also understand and consider is what this offer entails. Look once again at verse 11. And what does Jesus say, or what does Luke writes? And Jesus says, you will be catching men, follow me. Or from now on, you'll be catching men. Look at verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, look what it says. They left everything and followed him. You should underline or highlight that. They left everything and followed him. You see, this call to Jesus to follow Jesus entails a total abandonment 
of all that they had, all that they aspired to. They were to leave their businesses, their families, not in a matter of leaving their families uh, uh, just in travel is what we're trying to say here. They were to leave their career and follow Jesus. No longer were they to be fisher of men, but disciples and fishermen of, of men, fishermen of men, fishers of men. In the end, this calling would cost them, as you and I know today, their liberty and their lives. Now, the question I have is, why did they abandon everything to follow Jesus? Why would you leave the very thing that you know, the only thing that you know, to follow Jesus? Let me ask you, would you leave everything that you knew and worked hard for someone you didn't know very well? Probably not. If someone came and offered you something that sounded too good to be true, you would probably say, this sounds too good to be true. You would want to count the cost. You would have probably have some more questions. Even if someone were to come and do astonishing work, so you may be astonished and amazed, but still you would have questions. Let me ask you, what would compel you to give up everything for something you weren't really sure of? Maybe some of you have done that. You've left a job to go to another job. Maybe you've uprooted your family and moved somewhere else and started something anew and not really sure of what you're getting to, hoping that it turns out well. I want to give you four reasons. So with that, turn to John chapter 1. What would compel these four men to follow Jesus, leaving everything, abandoning all that they knew? Their business, their trade, their craft. Craft and their trade. I think there's four quick reasons. They're not going to be on the board here in the monitor. But in first, or John chapter 1, excuse me, John's Gospel chapter 1. I'm just going to look at four quick things. First, we're going to see that they were disciples of John the Baptist first. Look at verse 35 of John 1. The next day again, John, speaking of John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him uh, say this, and they then what? Followed Jesus. Go to verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So they were John's disciples. And remember, what did John always do? He prepared the way for the Messiah. Did John preach himself and his ministry and his agenda? No. He pointed always to Christ. And so they had been taught, look for the Messiah. He is coming soon. And as soon as Jesus comes by, John points to him, here is the man that I spoke of. They were expecting the Messiah to appear soon. Number two, Jesus' identity and ministry was affirmed by John the Baptist. So we could go a little bit earlier in chapter 1 and verse 29. The day before what we just read, it says the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said a little bit more. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the what? The sins of the world. Thank you. The sins of the world. They trusted the one. They trusted John who said, the joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, John speaking of Jesus and speaking of himself, he says, I must decrease. See, John the Baptist said, this is the Messiah. He's the one who will take away the sins of the world. 
And from this, as we continue on in the first three chapters of, of, of John, we see that these disciples, speaking of Andrew, John, and Peter, and James, they actually had followed Jesus for some time in Judea. If you were to read through John 1, 1 through 3, you'll see that Jesus turned water to wine at the wedding and the disciples, those disciples were there. He, they, they were there when he first cleansed the temple. They were, there when, they were there when he was baptizing. And they were also there when he met the woman at the well and shared and dramatically ch- changed her life. Now, most likely they had followed Jesus for some time, but they went back to fishing temporarily after following Jesus. This calling that we're seeing here is not the first time that they've met Jesus and saw what he could do. This calling here, though, is now a permanent call to forsake all and follow Jesus. So they had found, they they knew who he was, which goes us to number four, is they knew him, they watched him, and they had heard him for some time. In John chapter 2, look at John chapter 2, look at verse 23. Speaking of Jesus again, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. This is including those four men that we're seeing here in Luke. So they were disciples of John the Baptist who had been taught and prepared to look for the Messiah. John had identified and said, this is the man. They they had followed Jesus around and then they had believed in him. But for some reason, we're not really told, they went back to fishing. They went back to Galilee. Jesus finds himself back in Galilee. Hence, now we know why Jesus was at Simon's house in the first place from several weeks ago. They They had known each other. They had uh, worshipped together. Jesus had taught them. They had sat together. Now, though they had turned back, turned back to their old occupation, they had experienced enough, they had heard enough, and they had a witness enough to count the cost of abandoning everything to follow him. They knew what they were doing. They knew who Jesus was. These four men left their business and their financial security to follow Jesus. Their decision to drop everything to follow Jesus was no blind leap of faith or some reckless endeavor on their part. It was not a spin of the wheel or Jesus take the wheel moment. It was a calculated decision that was based on reason and faith in which they believe and trusted that Jesus was who he said he was. Being a Christian means leaving everything to follow Jesus. I need to share with you just for a moment. Being a believer, a follower of Christ, is more than just repeating a prayer. It's more than just expressing some type of little slogan, putting a bumper sticker on your car. It's more than just growing up in a Christian school or a Christian family. No, becoming a Christian is following Christ. It's leaving all. It's abandoning it all and seeing that he is more worth than anything else. This is made clearer later when Luke would record the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, I believe we may have it here on the monitor in verse 23. When Jesus says, anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross when? Daily. And follow me. For whoever would save his life must lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And these four men would go, or not, well, three of the four men would go to, uh, go to their death as martyrs 
for Christ. Only John would die a somewhat of a natural death. The others would be martyred. Their blood shed for their trust in Christ. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As we just continue on in the message. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. One may ask, why does Jesus waste his first draft pick on mere fishermen? Of all the people that Jesus could choose, why would he choose four backwater fishermen? What a waste. It's like choosing Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan in 1984. I can't even remember the date year. Sam Bowie seemed like a sure bet. I don't even know if he ever played a game, did he? I think he played just a few. This is between Randy and I. You guys can just listen for a bit. Why would God not, why would Jesus not choose Nicodemus? The man that he had spoke to earlier in his ministry. He was at least a highly respected religious leader. Or why not someone with political clout, maybe from Herod's court, or, or maybe with someone who had an ear to Pontius Pilate or even a Caesar? Or what about a financial merchant, someone with a, a power broker who could grease the wheels of Jesus' ministry with more influence? Jesus could have done this, but he didn't. Jesus chose a man, Peter, who would eventually deny him three times. And who failed quite a bit. Who even Paul had to bring to the woodshed at least once. This is the man who Jesus chose. He could have chose anyone, but he did not. He chose these four. Jesus chooses whom he sees fit, not as the world sees fit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 26. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Paul is writing to the Christian, uh, Christians at the church of Corinth. He says, consider your calling, your choosing, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. I, I don't know if that's a good way to start off talking to your congregation. but He says, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But in verse 27, again, this great but. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29. So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Amen. Therefore it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, God did not choose as the world chooses, but God calls those whom the world would not see fit. And this is God's choice. This is God's ordination. And this should not surprise us. As Yahweh had declared in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, regarding the choosing of David as the next king of Israel. But the Lord said to Samuel, remember the prophet, Do not look on his appearance, speaking of the one he was supposed to choose, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, speaking of David's older brothers. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And for some reason, Jesus was able to look at Simon Peter. And though he knew that he would deny him, even though he knew that he was a sinful man, that was no uh, surprise to Jesus. 
even though he knew that Simon would many times have foot mouth disease and the fact that he would always put his foot in his mouth, Jesus was able to look in that sin-saturated heart and say, look at this, I choose you. And let me share with you, if you're to here today and you are a Christ follower, he looked past the very same things in your life and said, I choose you. And you know your hearts. Now, some of you would here say, well, I would not say I'm a sinful man. I would not care, call myself, depart from me. Well, Jesus won't choose that type of heart. The one he, cho- he chooses is a repentive heart, a broken spirit, as David says in Psalms. Luke's narrative this morning focuses on three points. The gathering of the fish, the humbling of Peter, and the declaring of a new purpose. And these three focal points serve once again to display the power of Christ and the grace of God in rescuing sinners and commissioning them them in his great redemption plan. And what I want you to see is when you read back into this origin story of Peter and James and Andrew and John, you and I must also see that we too were once like them. And God has also called and commissioned us as ambassadors in his redemption plan. Luke records gives us a certainty and confidence that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he chose these four men to follow him just as he knew what he was doing when he called and chose you. You and I are to serve as his ambassadors. We are of the lowly. We are the ones that many would look over. Many of us would be chosen last in a game of pickup ball. But Jesus called and chose you because he loves you. And he sees something that you cannot. And I'm going to tell you that calls for a call of full abandonment. And so many times you and I are still holding on to things. And Jesus is saying, no, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross daily and die to yourself and follow me. For us today, this passage gives us the appropriate response to the ministry and work of Jesus Christ. And that's where we need to get to this morning. The appropriate response to the ministry and work of Jesus Christ. Though you and I may never see a miracle similar to the ones depicted in this passage. Believe me, if you were to get in a boat with me and say, Rob, let's go fishing, you will not find many fish in that boat. I went fishing once with a group of men in Minnesota, and I did not catch anything but a bunch of weeds and rocks. And, and, and it's hard to catch a rock, by the way, uh, with, a, with a thing. I hardly caught anything. It's a good thing I did not starve that weekend because they allowed me to eat their fish, which if you know me, that was a hard thing enough. You and I will not see and experience those types of miracles. However, you and I see the wonders and glories of Christ through the special revelation that's found in God's word. Now, let me take my mask off because that looks kind of weird. You never know what's going to happen up here. Where was I? God's word. 
you will find the wonders of Christ. And that's why you and I need to get in. This is God's special love letter to you and I. And I shared this with you before. As you and I read through Luke, we need to see the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus is. Not only do we have the special revelation, but you and I can go outside and see the the beautiful and the wonderful of his common revelation, of the natural revelation of the skies and the stars, of going out and going on hikes and walks and seeing God's beauty. But you and I also see it in the birth of children and in the the heart of of, of little ones and people who, who still try to attempt to do good to others. And as a church, as we love one another as broken and many times as sinful as we still are when we accept one another. In this passage, we see the appropriate response to the ministry of Jesus. And this still happens today as we read his word. You'll see it here on the board, monitors. The first one is the astonishment of works. The astonishment of works. As you and I need to see the works and the beauty of Christ and be astonished, be amazed at what he's doing. We also see the awareness of sinfulness. When we see the works of God, it it brings to attention who you and I are and our wickedness and our sinfulness. Then we also see the acceptance of a new calling. As God brings us to a new calling, as, as we see in Matthew 28, he's, he's called us to be ambassadors, to, to preach and to teach and to baptize in his name. We have a great commission. But also we see that that new calling comes with an abandonment of all things. And I believe this is where we as Christians many times fail. Because we're holding on to our old life and to our old sins and our old way of thinking with one hand. And trying to hold on to Christ. And there is that pull, that spirit in the flesh against each other. You and I need to totally let go. It's kind of like if you were in a boat that was sinking. And you grabbed onto a piece of a board or maybe a life jacket or life preserve that's still there. And the rest of the boat is going down. And you see another boat is coming to you and it throws out a lifeline. And you know that if you grab on that, you will be safe. However, you have been holding on to that, to that piece of board or whatever it is from the broken ship for so long, you're afraid to let go. Or you, you may grab onto it, and then as they're trying to drag you to freedom, you're grabbing the other thing, and it's dragging you and slowing your progress. That's why many of us struggle in our Christian life. Our sanctification seems to be going so slow. Well, we're creating this great wake. There's some things that you need to let go in your life, and only you know what that is. Christ says, abandon all things and follow me. Earlier, Landon, in our scripture reading, read of the call of Isaiah as the prophet to Israel. And I read, had him read that because of the similarities between Peter and Isaiah. And you'll see that in Isaiah 6 and Luke chapter 5, you see that Lord appears in his glory. To Isaiah, he's brought into a vision and he sees the most holy one. To Peter, he sees the Lord appears in his glory by doing this great miracle. Depart from me. That's expressing that he, he recognizes that there's something holy about Jesus. The other similarity is the sense of sinfulness and unworthiness. 
Isaiah says, I come from a man of unclean lips. Peter says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. But what does Jesus do when we confess that? He sends down to Isaiah a seraphim with a coal that touches his lips. For Peter, he says, I'm going to give you a new calling. And it's the same thing for you and I. When we see the glory of God through Scripture, you and I should respond in a sense of sinfulness and unworthiness. As Paul says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. But yet then God, that's when he comes and he forgives us of our sins and gives us the righteousness of God. And then the last thing we see between the two is a divine commission. Who will go for us? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Peter says, I'll abandon all and follow you. And that's the call that you and I should have as well. Like Isaiah and the disciples, God has revealed himself to us. He has cleansed us from our sins and he has commissioned us to serve as his ambassadors. And like Isaiah and the disciples, our response should be to abandon all of that and shout, here am I, send me. Would you do so this morning? Have you done so? Is there anything that's holding you back? Is there something as a believer you're still clinging to that's slowing your progress? Do not be like Lot's wife who looks back towards Sodom. Look forward. As Paul said, I leave all that's behind and I press forward to the mark of the high calling of God. Would you do so this morning? Later in his life, Peter would write in his first letter. You'd see this on the monitor, I believe. He says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. He's speaking to us in the church. He says, you are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The same things he said of Israel, he is now saying of you. That you may, look at this, proclaim the excellencies of him. What are you and I are to do? We're to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I encourage you, if you've never heard our message in First Peter, go back to it. I believe you'll, as we look through that passage, you will be encouraged, is that God has called us to proclaim the excellencies of him. Abandon it all, proclaim him. Let us commit to that charge this morning. Have you abandoned all things to declare the beauty of Christ? What is holding you back from doing so? What is preventing you from obeying his call? from saying, here am I, send me. With every head bowed and every head closed, and we ask the worship team to go ahead and come up at this time and prepare, as well as I'll ask Randy to come on up, and he'll close this with our pastor's prayer. But I want you to just take a moment to consider the things that we've shared this morning. I want you to pray. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, what is he calling you to do? What is it that you need to abandon? What is it of Christ that you need to hold on to? What is it that you need to see? Do you need to see your sinfulness? Do you see yourself as righteous? Do you see yourself as one who could stand before God? But let me share with you. The Bible says that we have all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He has told us that we will one day stand before him and give an account. The Bible says that the penalty or the wages of our sin is death, is separation from God's wonderful love and care. But Jesus says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. If you have never done that, would you do so today? If you would like to know more how to do that, could you see Randy or Landon and I? We'd love to share with you how you too can have salvation, eternal life. How you can be transferred to the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I pray that you would do so this morning. And for the believer, would you follow him with total, total abandonment? Randy, would you please come and share with us your pastor's prayer this morning? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.